All right, we are continuing our series titled um, Sermon on the Mount, and if you've been joining us on Sundays, you know, the, the, this theme that keeps coming out is uh, as Jesus brings this new kingdom, all right, one of the principles of this new kingdom is that Christianity, religion, is not about the externals only, right? What's important is, is what exists and what happens in our minds and in our hearts. And this also extends to prayer. And I don't know if you guys have uh, grown up in the church or not, or maybe, you know, you, the church is, is very new to you. You know, we all fall on some spectrum on this sort of scale here. And prayer is, is something, either it's really mysterious to you, or it's something that you've just done, you've just seen it modeled for you by different people, by different uh, people that were a part of your lives, and it's just kind of, it's something you, you've kind of taken on and you've learned, and sometimes uh, you pray the way that, you know, the way that others around you pray. You've kind of adopted styles and mannerisms and things like that, or, or yeah, or you just, prayer is not a part of your life, right? It's not something you do. And so, wherever it is that you uh, come today, with your experiences or understanding of prayer, what I want to do is look at these few verses, and I think it's really important, right, because this is Jesus himself explaining his thoughts uh, regarding prayer. And the first thing I think that's going to come out is uh, how not to pray and what prayer isn't, right? So in a way, it'll help us to understand prayer better. And then secondly, I I wanted us to kind of explore this concept, well, okay, if that's not what prayer is, well, he gives us the model of prayer, and that's probably familiar to any of, anyone who's been in the church for a little bit, you know, the, the, the Lord's Prayer. But I wanted to kind of go at it from a different approach, and, and you know, he says something, Jesus says something, he, which I think jumps out at, at me, it's this. He says, our Father knows. In fact, it's this idea that God already knows before we pray it. And if that's true, then why do we pray still? If he already knows, then why do we pray and how should we pray? And what's the point of prayer? Okay? And so I think it comes out uh, in the Lord's Prayer, and I think Jesus explains that. So that's going to be what, um, what we're going to try to do today. It's not a complete treatise on prayer. It's not you know, meant to understand everything about prayer, but that's what I'm gonna, exactly what I explain. Okay, first of all, he jumps right in by saying that we must not pray uh, or be like hypocrites when we pray. And so he introduces the idea that there is a hypocritical way of praying or the prayer of hypocrites. And I don't know what your understanding may be of hypocrites or what hypocritical prayer would be, but just in case there's some confusion, he says in verse 5, all right, these hypocrites are people who love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. I say to you, they have received their reward. And then further, he says in verse 6, when you pray, though, all right, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So I think these two verses deal with this concept and idea of hypocritical prayer. You know, back then, they prayed three times a day. There were three specific times, morning and in the afternoon and in the evening. And, and when the hour came... If you were a good, pious, religious, Jewish child of God, you would stop what you're doing and you would pray. But you see, having that system and that formula of when you would pray, it really kind of made it easy for some, all right, if you really wanted to do this, 
you could kind of plan where you would be, around who you would be with, what situation you would be in when it came time to pray. And you could easily under, uh, picture this, but bam, the hour comes, 3 p.m., the afternoon hour, and oh, I'm here on this street corner, it's a busy street corner, and you could make, you know, the most religious, pious, look at me, hear this, see how much I know about the scriptures, kind of prayer in public. You could put on a big show, a pretentious display. All you really had to do was make sure you were at the right place at the right time. So don't get confused. Jesus is not saying, hey, the the problem here of the hypocritical prayer is the posture. They were standing, you know, you should be kneeling or something. There's like a better position or something. Jesus is not talking about it. It's not the fact that they were standing. They loved this. Nor is it the location. It's not the fact that they're praying in the temples, the synagogues. And it's not the fact that they're praying in public on the street corners. In fact, Acts 3.1 shows Peter and John, his disciples, that they would go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They would pray, the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m. In Max, uh, Matthew 14.19, later in the same book, we would see Jesus himself ordering the crowds to have a seat, to take down. And it, it's a familiar story if you've been in the church. The five loaves, the two fish. He looks up to the heaven and he says a very public prayer of blessing, right? So Jesus can't be speaking out against public prayer or against going into the synagogues. What he's speaking out against is the prayer that is concerned for others rather than for God. Douglas O'Donnell puts it this way, quote, Their reward was the praise of men, but not of God. The approval and applause of earth, but not of heaven. Who is our audience in prayer and what is our motive? You know, it's, it's funny, but I think today I, we deal with the opposite problem. Like, ding dong, three o'clock, and not everyone's jumping for the, the best spot, and I want to be the loudest prayer, and I want everyone to hear me. How do I know this? Well, whenever I ask for someone to lead us in public prayer at the church, all right, and now, and I start looking around, and who's going to lead us in prayer? Guess what everyone does? Everyone turns away from me, right? It's like no one wants to look at me in the eye. Some people just start praying right away, right? They just, you know, they don't want to be the one called on. Uh, a little little teasing here, but I think for many of us, we don't want to be the guy that has to stand up and lead everyone in a public prayer, right? It's like, I don't know, for whatever reason. So we kind of maybe deal with the opposite problem. But I wonder if at the source, at, sort of at the root of it all, it's the same situation. Maybe it's because we are more concerned about what others will think about our prayer than what God thinks about our so in a way, it's sort of the opposite side of it, but it's the same issue, right? We're so afraid of whether others will judge our prayers, whether they'll think we are, our prayers are theological enough or flowery enough or whatever, good-sounding enough, leader enough, whatever. And we're like, oh, I don't want to do it. And it's this idea that, oh yeah, they're, they're going to hear me and they're going to think something of me. For the hypocrites that Jesus was talking about, it was that they wanted to be heard and they wanted to be recognized for their studies and their achievements and et cetera. But maybe for us, it's because we're afraid <laughs> of the opposite situation. But it's still the same root. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. 
instead of thinking about what others will think and what others will consider, uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a time of prayer between you and God the Father. So he even says, look, go into your, your right private room, right, verse 6, into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. You know, the funny thing is, today for us, that's easy for us to think of. Like, most of us can think of, okay, I can go into this room and, and shut the door. I can go into my closet and shut the door. I can go into my bedroom, shut the door, whatever. And we maybe we have corners in our house that we think of. But what's interesting back then, and you know, Michael Wilkins brought this to my attention, he said that most people did not have separate private quarters in their homes. So it's kind of a weird thing to tell people who, who aren't used to having you know, four bedroom where every, every person has their own room and every person part, to, to be considered a bedroom, you have to have a closet or whatever and all of this stuff. He, he's talking to people who, you know, you're, you're living in smaller, uh, more, you know, shared spaces and he's telling them to go into your own room, shut the door. Sounds a little weird, but I think what Jesus is emphasizing is the aspect of it being in private. Right? It's between you and God. There's this intimacy to prayer. It's, it's not just something that is meant to... Now, we have to admit, because even Paul does this in Scripture and Jesus does this in Scripture, sometimes for them, there was, as they were praying publicly, they, it seemed like they wanted to also teach something publicly. Of course, we'll admit that. But that's not, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about that time that we come before God to lay our requests, to pray to Him, to have that time of communion. It's not meant to be a show. It's not meant to show off something about your understanding or knowledge or experience. It is meant to be a one-to-one -one time with our Heavenly Father. And so Jesus directs us to go to our inner rooms, to our private places and spaces, to do it in secret versus as a big, big show. The second type of prayer he talks about, and I think this helps us to understand a little bit more about prayer, is he talks about, starting in verse um, 7, the, the, the empty phrases that maybe the Gentiles do as well. Like, you know, they think that they, they keep saying these words and these many words, and all right, God's going to hear it. Now, we have to be clear because Jesus himself prayed through the night. So Jesus himself had long prayers. If you think of the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion, he had a very long time of prayer that night. We, we also can see that Jesus himself in Luke 18 taught a parable about a widow who is commended by, by Jesus for being what? For being really, you know, for, for just persevering. And, and it's that concept and that lesson of you got to keep coming before God, right? Of persevering in your prayer life. So Jesus can't be ridiculing or, or speaking out against long prayer, repetitive prayer, or... or um, persistent prayer. So then what kind of prayer is he talking about when he says the empty phrases of the Gentiles and of the many words that they think they'll be heard? Okay, so I think the, the clearest and best explanation I found was this. It's the empty and mindless words that are repeated over and over again without thinking what these words mean. So it's the idea of almost like there's some magic formula that will unlock God's heart, right? It's like Open sesame. How can I open God's heart towards me? How can I make him open up his mind towards me? How can I make him hear it? Well, here's a formula I can use. And you just keep on saying the formula. 
And you're not really thinking about what it means. It's an incantation and it's no longer a prayer. Okay? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Um, I, I really like this quote from uh, R.A. Torrey in his book, The Power of Prayer. He says this, We should never utter one syllable of prayer, either in public or in private, until we are definitely conscious that we have come into the presence of God and are actually praying to him. Right? It's a great quote, or at least I thought it was. I think it is. Because it, it kind of touches on the two very things that Jesus is talking about here. You know, whether it's in public or in private, there's this idea of you are coming into the presence of God. It's about you and him. And you shouldn't even utter one syllable without you sort of being conscious of what you're saying and you thinking about what you're saying. So that we have to be careful that we're not just throwing out all these empty phrases, empty words. Saying things without thinking about it. So then, Jesus then says something, I think, for me, that gets very interesting, right? Do not be like them, verse 8, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Before you ask Him, the Father knows what you need. Now, for us, when we hear that, some of us may think, all right, and maybe some of you young guys may think this, because I know when I was younger, I thought this. All right, if God already knows what I want, and in fact, if God already knows what I need, why pray? Why do I have to come before him and ask him? What's the point of that exercise? He already knows, right, what I'm about to ask. Wives, wouldn't you love it if your husband's already knew, right? Before you even ask to take out the trash, do the dishes, wash the car, mow the lawn, before you already ask, he'd be like, oh, I know, right? So you, you could just save your energy. Like, whoa, 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 what's the point? Why ask? So that there's that aspect to aspect to it, and and then you know why pray? And maybe there's a second question of well, then does he really care? I mean, all these things are happening in my life, and he if he knows that this is hurting me or this is causing me to struggle here, he he must know. Then either he doesn't care about me and doesn't love me, or maybe he doesn't really know, right? So those are the kind of two questions I want to address with our remaining time. I'll try to do it quickly. Someone's already laughing about the quickly part, I think. Yeah. First of all, I think what happens is, and this is interesting, for Jesus, when he says, look, your father knows, it's the idea of your father already knows before you ask. For Jesus, it leads him down a different path than the path I just talked about with the questions. For Jesus, when he considers the Father already knows, that leads for him to jump right into the prayer that we have titled the Lord's Prayer. So for Jesus, the natural conclusion of the Father knows is actually to pray. And not just to pray, but to have this way of praying, the model of prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Okay? So first of all, that's the, 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 the biggest difference. And, and maybe we could try and understand why, is, why does... Uh, for Christ, why does he make that conclusion instead of the conclusion that sometimes we make? If Father already knows, why should we pray? Okay? So for us, one of the things I think that 
maybe it's not, you know, and maybe something we got to think about today is this. A lot of times, maybe what we think the primary purpose of prayer is, is we have to enlighten God. We have to reveal and show God what he's missing. Maybe he hasn't understood something about us. Maybe there's something that he doesn't, he doesn't understand how much this hurts me. Like, this is not a small thing, God, so let's escalate this. Let me just explain to you for reasons A, B, and C. You're not, God, you're not seeing how, this is a big deal. So we've got to help him to see. And, and maybe we've got to help convince him, since, since this is how, this is what we're going through, Lord, what I think the best course of action here is, God, is this. And, and, and maybe we're like, just hear it out, God. Hear it out. Yes or no, but at least consider it. I wonder for Jesus, though, if it's something different. Right? Because in his model prayer, the first three statements is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Okay, four statements. Your will be done. One, two, three, four. Right? Verses 9 and into 10. Right away, he starts his prayer with the word that uh, our father, but you know how there's like different ways to, to, to say father, dad, daddy, dada, whatever. I, you know, appa. Same thing. There's different terms and words that could have been used by Jesus in his model prayer. But he actually uses Abba, which is one of great intimacy and warmth. Uh, commentators will say it's most like using the word in, in English, similar to daddy. Like, I'm 45 years old. I wouldn't in public turn to my dad and be like, daddy. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's funny to you guys because it's just it's like, you know, right? There'd be a different way we would address our, our parents in public as grown-ups. Grown daddy is kind of sounds uh, childish. But Jesus uses that word here. Right, um, it's such a term of endearment, uh, intimacy, uh, and D. A. Carson says this: this opening designation establishes the kind of God to whom prayer is offered. He is personal and caring. The entire formula is less concerned with the proper protocol in approaching deity than with the truth of who He is. He's a God who is in the heavens, creator of the universe, in control of all things, and sovereign over all things. He's a God who knows us fully, and yet. What does he do? He makes us and calls us his children, and he says, I'm your daddy, <laughs> Abba Father. It's amazing. And the reason why it's amazing is, consider this, most of us are, are scared of revealing everything about who we are. Most of us are protective of our thoughts, our secrets, because we feel like if someone really knew everything that was going on in here and in here, it might push people away from us. Or maybe that's something you've done with someone else in your life. You've gotten to know them better, you got closer to them, and you realize, mm, I don't know, and you know, we create, we have all these fancy terms for it now, we create boundaries, right? We create space, we distance ourselves a little bit. And if you think about this, God knows 
all of the things that goes on in our mind and in our hearts, the, the murderous thoughts and actions and the, the thoughts that are embarrassing that we get sometimes, if there's things that are not clean and holy and, and you know, in a way, a great, great description of us is enemies of God, right? not living according to his standards or his word, something that he's kind of a life that's set, set apart for us, and we, we fail to live that life over and over, but not just fail to live it out. I mean, our thoughts are even, right? And the crazy thing is, God does not choose to distance himself from us. He doesn't create boundaries. He doesn't, he's not like, hey, I, I know I created them, so all right, I, all right, I, you know, I, Hey, I won't, I won't kill everybody, but <laughs> am I going to let them into my kingdom? Mm. You know, the crazy thing is, if you, you, you look at Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I've been married almost 19 years. I'm, I'm like getting close to our 19th anniversary. If I chose to, I could have journaled like, Every action my wife took, right? I could have journaled when she wakes up, when she goes to bed, what she likes to eat. I could have created a huge journal. I could have put it into something and figured out the algorithm. And I could have been like, you know what? I know my wife better than everybody else in the world. I know when she likes to eat, what she likes to eat when she wakes up. I know what her hobbies are. I know how she gets stressed, etc. I could, you know, all of the external actions I could know super well. But... Even after 19 years, I could still struggle to know what's in her mind, right? I could struggle to know what's in her heart. If she gets upset at me, I could be like, is she a little upset? Is she really upset? Is she mildly upset? I don't know. I may have to struggle with what is she upset about, right? What, did I do something? Was it something at work? Is it our daughter? Oh, yeah, it's got to be our daughter. <laughs> I could run. Th- I can't read her thoughts. And praise God that I can't. Right? But God, he, it's kind of crazy to think about it, but he knows all of those things. And he still chooses not to distance himself from us. Amen? So I think my, one of my th- conclusions is the reason why he says, well, the Father already knows and it draws Jesus to, to go into this prayer is because he realizes that God is a heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us. Even though he knows us, he still chooses to be our God and our Father. That's love. So it's not based on our actions or our abilities, but it's based upon the character and the love of God. Secondly, what we see here is when we look at those statements of, of, of how he begins his prayer and how he even ends this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Um, and, and even at the end, forgive us our debts. We've also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Something else we see here is first, 
prayer, we, we pray to a God who already knows everything we need and want because God wants us to depend upon him and trust him. Not because he doesn't know what we're going through. Okay? There's a big difference there. You know, I talk about my wife and daughter a lot, but, you know, my daughter is going to be a senior in high school. And some of my friends are like, they've been asking me a lot, like, oh, man, in one more year, she's going to go to college, you're done, empty nester, what are you going to do with your time? And I'm like, what's the problem? Sounds like a good thing, right? I will figure something out. When it comes, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out what to do when I don't have to do all the other stuff. Yeah, well, my wife and I, we're young. We'll figure out what to do. I don't think it's that big of a problem, but right when I really sit there and think about it, it is kind of sad that she's growing up and she needs me less. Right? There is the joy of watching her grow, and then there's the sadness of watching her grow. And, you know, kind of like this final step here, and it's a pretty grueling step here of getting her driver's license, right? Ooh. You know, if you haven't gone through that stage yet, man, you know, there's some anxious moments, and you're gripping your car like you've never gripped it before, and, and um, yeah, but once she has her driver's license, she doesn't need me to be uh, her chauffeur anymore. She can drive wherever she wants to go. She just probably needs me for gas money, at least. I mean, I, I guess I can control that. But in reality, it's a great thing for her to grow and not depend on me, right? She needs to become an adult, needs to figure out how to do things for herself, become strong, etc. all of those things. It's a wonderful thing. But... As she grows, my prayer for her is that she will always depend upon her Heavenly Father. That there are things that I could never do for her, that I can't give her, but her Heavenly Father, right? Lord of creation. And because she has a God who knows her and still loves her, I want her to trust her. Trust him, I mean. I want her to trust him. You see, only if you depend upon the Father and trust him can you say, hallowed be your name, which is a prayer. You want his name to be set on high, to be revered, to be uh, set up in the highest honor and glory. Only then can you ask for your kingdom to come, which is a prayer asking for God's rule, for his reign, for him to be sovereign. Only then can you pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is a prayer asking for God's plan, for God's purpose, for all of these things to come to pass. You don't pray that unless you trust God. And when we trust God, then we can come before him and lay all of our requests before him. Give us this day our daily bread. And it's not just a simple prayer for daily bread. That daily bread represents all of our needs to live, to survive, to grow, to mature. But it's, you know, you you may have heard this before, to pray for our needs, not our greeds. It's the things that we actually need. You know, Proverbs 38 to 9, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, right? There are things that we have to have to live every day. But look how he ends this 
prayer, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is kind of the heart of our relationship with the Father. This is what he does for us that no one else can do for us. This is why we have to keep coming before him in order to pray. Because there is a debt that we cannot pay. And everybody in this world tries to pay this debt off in one way or another. Even the philosophy of being an atheist approaches your life situation and believes that the way to answer everything is by saying, I am the ultimate authority. I am the one God who has to be answered. But there are tons of religions and paths and philosophies that says, if you do this, if you live this way, if you obey these rules, if you govern yourself in this way, your debt will be paid. But the reality of life is that we have a debt that cannot be paid by ourselves. It's like having a mortgage that grows every day, bigger and bigger and bigger, because we keep adding to our debt. No matter how hard we try not to sin, no matter how hard we try to obey the law, we find ourselves sinning over and over and again, and all that does is increase the debt. And you may have days where you double and triple your amount owed. And you may have days you think, I have for sure lessened the debt. But even those days, because our, even our most righteous acts are like dirty rags, even on those days, our debt just keeps growing and growing. But the beautiful message of the gospel is that Jesus takes that debt and pays it off. It's not that it's just forgotten. It's not that it's just completely removed. It's that someone paid the price. And isn't that the glory of the cross? And because Jesus paid that price and paid that debt for us, it leads us into a situation where when we understand that kind of love and forgiveness, what do we do? Yes, we forgive others. Because we know it wasn't by our strength or our goodness or our obedience that we were forgiven this debt. We know it was by God's grace and his goodness. And so the church ought to be a place of much forgiveness and much grace. Amen? Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. at the heart of this so knowing that your father in heaven knows you shouldn't lead us to question the need for prayer I think it should lead us to want to pray our father in heaven right your kingdom come your will be done yeah hey I've got these needs God you've got to help me with these things yes we are encouraged by Christ himself to make those petitions but to do it as someone who trusts and depends upon this God and Father. And to pray and continue to ask, not only for forgiveness from our debts, but the ability to forgive and love others, to be led not into temptation, but delivered from evil. All right, let's pray, you guys.